0: What did you leave for?
1: You didn't want a drink. All you wanted to do was yap. I don't make any money on that.
0: You're not getting so rich out here all by yourself. What's wrong with me anyway? You're corny. What did I say? We were just talking. Oh, is that what that was? You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to take you dancing. You remind me of my wife. What's the idea of saying a thing like that? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. Hello
1: and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Rastlin.
0: I'm David Daw.
1: And this week we watched the 1947 Noir film Crossfire, which is not actually the inspiration for the Crossfire board game. Yeah. Despite all hopes to the contrary.
0: It is both an interesting enough movie that that is okay, and also a movie that in no way needs to be called Crossfire. The title has basically nothing to do with the movie. You can kind of make it work, but this movie could be called A Hundred Other Things, and you'd be like, yeah, sure. And it's, I don't know, it is noir as fuck, and then in the end it gets pretty good, But also, in being as noir as fuck, there's some real over-the-top acting here, and it just, it ain't the Maltese Falcon.
1: No, it is not the Maltese Falcon. It is not as good of a film. The characters are not as interesting. But Virginia Tremaine is such a noir cliche and so enjoyable for me.
0: Yeah. I say this, I feel like, a lot in the podcast, but I am just going to put my foot down and say Virginia Tremaine is the best character name we have had in the history of Screen Test of Time.
1: It's a great name.
0: But we should probably explain why Virginia Tremaine shows up in this movie by explaining the plot. We start with a murder in the dark. A guy is beaten to death, and then a dude that we can't see because it's too dark in here, grabs a friend who's sitting on a chair and wanders out of the room. And we then smash cut to the police investigating this murder. And the police are doing nuari shit until a guy shows up at the door and goes, oh, I guess I have the wrong place I want to leave, and explains the first version of the backstory of what happened here, which is that this guy is a veteran, and there are a couple of army officers who are all leaving the army after World War II in various ways.
1: They are demobilized, so they're still... Living together and they're still in the army, but they're about to be discharged. Yes. To go back to having a life, a regular life.
0: (laughs) And they have gone out on leave and they met up with this guy and struck up a conversation with him and ended up going back to his place. And this guy goes, and then the only person who was left there whose time I can't account for is this guy uh god i get all of their names confused mitchell because there's also montgomery but mitchell is the guy they try to pin it on initially
1: and he is the sweetest nicest soldier that ever did live people say oh he couldn't have done it because he literally couldn't kill anybody while we were at war. Yeah. He has not cheated on his wife, whereas everybody else is like, eh, you know, you do what you do when you're in the army, and, like, maybe when I go home with my wife, we'll pick back up, and maybe not. Who knows? (laughs) And the one night that he tries and fails, (laughs) he gets pinned for murder.
0: (laughs) But that also means, because he is the, like, sweetest little boy that ever did live... He's a really passive character. And so this is also where we meet Robert Mitchum's character, who, in my opinion, locks this movie into fucking place.
1: Oh, absolutely. Robert Mitchum is fantastic in this. Yeah. And is doing the work of a narrator in the sense of creating structure and an actual framework for this story instead of... Well, I guess the police are sitting around smoking cigarettes and wearing fedoras and not knowing what the fuck to do. Yeah. (laughs) Except he's not even a narrator. It's a pretty impressive writing trick that they make him an active character who is doing the work of the narrator in this.
0: Right. This is a weird movie because I must say that I'm contractually obligated, but in a really good way, because it's kind of a proto buddy cop movie.
1: Oh, yeah, it kind of is.
0: Captain Finlay, the actual cop being investigated here, has this adversarial, friendly, but like, you're doing it the wrong way and I'm going to stop you relationship with Robert Mitchum's character, Sergeant Keeley, who's the commanding officer of Mitchell, who is trying to make sure he's not pinned for murder because he knows Mitchell couldn't have done it. And both Finlay and Keeley are kind of in parallel, but also semi-adversarially investigating this murder and sort of getting to different suspects at different times and figuring out different parts of it. And it is only in Act 3 where they decide to work together that the mystery is really solved Even though you actually know who did it about 30 minutes in because the guy who showed up at the door and was like, I didn't mean to be here, was actually just trying to pin the murder on Mitchell because he did it because he's an anti-Semite piece of shit.
1: Oh man, he's terrible.
0: Who does a really great performance of being an anti-Semite piece of shit, by the way.
1: So Robert Ryan, who is the actor who plays the anti-Semite piece of shit, was in the Marines with Richard Brooks, who wrote the novel on which this is based and would also go on to be a big screenwriter in his own right after this period, he told Brooks, who published the book while they were still in the war, that he was going to play in an adaptation of his book on screen and damned if he didn't do it.
0: (laughs) Though I feel like probably he meant I want to play in the book, by the way, the thing that Montgomery, this asshole, sees as a like terrible aberration that must be destroyed is not people being Jewish, it's homosexuality. Uh, and the Hayes Code goes, actually, that is an aberration and must be stopped. Uh, so can we make it Jews?
1: Yeah. Oh boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Because here's the thing this movie does a really good job of making anti Semitism terrible and also of explaining to potentially ignorant people why it is bad (laughs) in a way that doesn't feel super preachy and is just like very straightforward um but there are definitely times in this film where i'm like this doesn't make any sense as this being the inciting factor for a murder
0: (laughs) It is less that it doesn't make any sense, because the movie justifies that. I mean, hate is senseless. Like, if you are just a racist piece of shit, there's regular type racism, and then there's just this weird pathological version that is even worse that some people have, and that's what's going on with Montgomery. It's that the actual victim's behavior makes a lot more sense if he's gay than if he's Jewish. You do essentially go like, why is this guy bringing these people back up to his house?
1: Right, like random guys that are 20 years younger than he is that he is bringing back up to his home to have a drink at 2 a.m.?
0: <laughs> right. And it makes way more sense that this guy is trying to pick Mitchell up. And Mitchell is kind of such a sad sack, agreeable guy that he's like, yeah, sure. I love to party. Like doesn't actually get what's going on. Then that this random Jewish guy just has musings on the nature of man and war and wants to bring an army soldier up to his apartment to muse about it some more.
1: Which, you know, fine. But the other thing, too, is what is the behavior that tips off Montgomery that the guy is Jewish? Right. Like, if you're a homophobic asshole who's going to use a gay panic defense, there is an inciting incident where somebody goes like, oh, well, that guy hit on me. Even if he wasn't hitting on you, there is that excuse, right? But, like, he was being Jewish near me?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a little complicated. But, I mean, at the same time, I don't want to knock it too much. Because one, it is the Hayes Code that is forcing the movie into this shape. And two, even in this shape, it is dealing with anti-Semitism way more frankly than movies that are completely about anti-Semitism that we have watched.
1: Oh, no, I'm not. I So let me be clear here. I'm not complaining that the film doesn't address the issue that it's supposed to. What I'm saying is there are a number of times where Despite the Hays Code, if I were watching this movie in 1947, I would have been like, oh, the guy was gay. Okay. (laughs) And the Jewish part is like a cover for that because we all know the Hays Code won't let them talk about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What I'm saying is more for the audience in terms of I want to be very clear that actually the anti-Semitism stuff works really well. Like, works way better than Emile Sola, a movie that is ostensibly about anti-Semitism.
1: Where they never once mention Jews or Judaism or anti-Semitism or anything else.
0: But we should get back to... The plot, such as it is, mostly because there's some stuff where there's another witness to the murder with Montgomery and Montgomery's trying to get them to get their story straight, but decides it's easier to just murder the other guy and tries to pin that murder on Mitchell too. But mostly it's that you meet Mitchell and Mitchell has gotten super duper drunk and distraught because he's an emotional good boy. And reveals that all he can really remember from last night is wandering away from the dude's apartment, going to this club, and meeting a girl named Jenny, which is short for Virginia, and trying to hook up with her, and ending up at her apartment where she is going to come home. But she doesn't come home, and instead who comes home is the weirdest character in the history of film. (laughs)
1: Who I'm still not entirely clear on what his relationship to Virginia actually is for real, for real. Right.
0: Because he goes like, who are you? And Mitchell's like, I don't know this. Do you know Jenny? Like, I'm supposed to meet Jenny here. And the guy goes, I'm her husband. Just kidding. I'm obsessed with her. Just kidding. I could give a shit about her. Just (laughs) kidding. I don't know who I am. Do you want some coffee?
1: Basically, yeah. And by the end of it, I'm again, even after he's confronted by the police, I'm still not entirely sure who the hell this guy is, but whatever.
0: <laughs> the cops, along with Mitchell's wife, eventually come back to Jenny's apartment, and that is where you learn that her full name is Virginia Tremaine, which, again, is the most noir name ever, and that's where she starts just throwing out noir line after noir line. <laughs>
1: Yeah, her entire monologue about how she just wanted to be a good girl or whatever but life beat her down and now boys pay for her and I mean, it is definitely one for the ages. Yeah. It is just like every cliche in one monologue in a way that actually improves the monologue rather than makes it worse.
0: Yeah, like everything in that scene is so cliched. Like it opens with her going like, I hate cops. And the cop going, everyone hates cops.
1: (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, what's your point? Can you get to the story? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. But eventually she reveals the truth of what happened, but it doesn't really help anything because it doesn't establish what Mitchell was doing at the actual time of the murder. Neither does the weird guy who lives with her, who tells the cops they're separated, but he's still in love with her, which seems like the most likely thing but also the dude is just a weirdo oh yeah like he just volunteers to tell the cops things while the cops are wandering away like you're not helping and just never locks into place i sort of have been for various reasons thinking about david lynch a lot and like this dude is totally a proto david lynch character because he never resolves the way that, like, traditional film characters resolve, where you would eventually have them explain, like, here is my whole deal, and here is who I am, and here is why earlier you were confused by me. And instead, this movie's like, just be confused by him forever.
1: <laughs> yeah, Jenny doesn't confirm either way if what he said was true. She's just like, shut up, I hate you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, okay, they certainly have some kind of relationship, just not sure what it is. I was waiting for him to say I'm her dad at some point, because I thought that that was maybe what was going on, but...
0: Yeah, or just like some weird roommate scenario. I briefly flirted with like, is he her pimp? And if so, we're never going to confirm that in this movie, right?
1: She does mention having a roommate at some point, but you know... Again, who knows what is actually going on here?
0: Right. We are probably zoomed in a little too much on this one particular scene, because now we are in the third act where I just love all of the third act. The third act is Keeley, Robert Mitchum's character, and Finlay, the cop, finally start working together. And one, I love that scene because I love that Finlay just has to do the barest suggestion of... I feel like the motive here was actually that the guy is just a psychopathic asshole and goes like, I feel like I don't need to spell out what you're saying here. And Keeley's like, oh, yeah, Montgomery did it. We're on the same page. What's going on? <laughs> like... Oh, yeah.
1: Well, because they go into this whole bit about motive <laughs> mm-hmm. and how if it's not something external like money or a woman or whatever, that it has to be something that the perpetrator carried in with him, which I think is such an incredibly simple and also eloquent way of describing that kind of level of racism and prejudice.
0: It's actually kind of the best definition of a hate crime I've ever heard. Yeah. The motive is something that the perpetrator carried in with them. Um.
1: But that's also the point where... Keely goes, oh, yeah, Montgomery, he says terrible shit about Jews all the time. He's just a bad person.
0: And they go like, here's the problem. We probably could eventually break Montgomery, but it is going to take months and it would be just a huge hassle. And we might not ever close the case because there's sort of no ironclad evidence. So I'm going to try this other strategy. Um, And the other strategy is... There's this sort of, uh, God, how to describe this guy? There's a, um, a member of the unit that Montgomery is constantly picking on and just constantly bullying and beating down because he's-
1: From Tennessee.
0: And Montgomery is just constantly like, this guy's a hick and using putting him down to puff himself up. And- the guy is clearly so beaten down by it that he's kind of started just accepting being Montgomery's toady in a weird way. And they go like, well, we need you to do this part of the plan for this to work because Montgomery trusts you because he basically thinks that you're enough of a like insect that he can just take whatever you say at face value (laughs) they don't say this particular part to him um but like we need you to be the one that gives him this sort of false piece of evidence and the guy is like i don't know i don't know and this is where Finlay gets to do the absolutely like jesus christ it is scary how much this all still resonates explanation of like hate and racism and how hate builds on hate and how excusing boring normal types of racism and hatred leaves this window open for absolute psychopaths like montgomery
1: (laughs) right who kill people and that it builds first it's this type of person then it becomes this type of person and by accepting it for one group you implicitly are allowing for the potential for it to be another group Including, you know, people from Tennessee who might be like you.
0: Yeah. And
1: one thing that that is really funny to me, though, they call him Leroy instead of Leroy, which I find to be really interesting because no one from Tennessee with this name would be Leroy. Yeah. But they talk about, does he make fun of you for your accent? And he calls you a hillbilly. And this guy does not have a Tennessee accent at all. He doesn't have even any kind of Southern accent, any kind of accent that... You know, a lot of times in films, you'll have somebody trying a Southern accent and it's this like amalgamation of what they think people from the South sound like, but has no regional anything. It's not even that. He just has like a totally neutral American Hollywood 1947 accent.
0: Yeah, although I do wonder if that's supposed to be that Montgomery basically literally beat the accent out of the guy and then still made fun of him for See, it. See, anyway. I don't
1: think it's that at all. I think it's that Montgomery is just an asshole and is like, oh, you're from Tennessee. I'm going to make fun of the way that you talk, even if you don't have an accent.
0: <laughs> I mean, what's it works either way. Because he says the thing like,
1: early on about, you know, oh, you'll have to forgive him. He's only recently started wearing shoes. And that's the kind of thing where, I mean... I definitely have had people living in the North who find out that I'm from Tennessee, and they're like, but you don't sound like it. And I'm like, yeah, we had television growing up. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't born in 1928 in a shack in the Smoky Mountains. I was born in a
0: city. (laughs) Also, just the southern accent is surprisingly easy to lose and pick back up again. This is a thing that like we have talked before about the y'alls creep back in when I'm visiting relatives in the south.
1: For me personally, I have felt a great affection for Leroy because I saw a lot of myself in him and I appreciated For once, that there was someone from Tennessee in a film who was not, one, the joke hillbilly, or two, the asshole racist who was killing people, (laughs) because that's usually the two things that you get when you have a character from Tennessee in a movie, so.
0: Yeah, I do think that's the most progressive part of that scene in a weird way. Finlay, the cop basically tells a long story about anti-Irish racism in the 19th century as a, it just keeps building and building until you stand up and do something to stop it. But that isn't quite enough for, for Leroy, for Leroy. And so he kind of has to do a couple of other things in the scene, two of which I thought were particularly like, "Who boy, boy, we've actually taken steps backwards. One is that one of the anecdotes, one of the sort of Socratic method questions that Finlay asks is like, you know how we have a law keeping you from just wandering around with a gun? And I'm like, we do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely felt that. Uh, And then I went, okay, maybe that's just in DC, because that's still true in DC. Yeah. But in Tennessee, they actually just passed a law where you can carry a gun anywhere at any time concealed or not with no permit so uh yeah if you were talking to Leroy today you'd be like what no we don't yeah (laughs) we have a what
0: (laughs) the other is this great moment where Leroy is very clearly like I'm not gonna betray another member of the army And not just Keeley, but Keeley's commanding officer goes, listen to me, I fucking hate that Montgomery is in the army. I hate that we have people like this in the military. Do not feel bad for a single second. Let's get rid of this guy.
1: Not just in the army, but in his unit. Because he's like, yeah, I don't like the guy, but this whole sort of fraternity about uh, people who are in your unit, that they're essentially your brothers. And he's like, no, 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 he's not our brother. Kick that fucker out and let's throw him in jail.
0: Right. Like, here's the thing. Leroy is very clearly like, I don't want to betray my unit. The army officer guy explicitly says the army hates having guys like Montgomery in the army.
1: Especially after, you know, we did just fight a whole war about this. (laughs) Yeah, which is interesting that they never bring that up. You know, I understand that in 47, the extent of the Holocaust was maybe not really known in the US yet, Uh, because a lot of this stuff was only discovered in like 45 when Americans were going in and liberating parts of Europe where there were concentration camps and sending these stories back. But it, it is interesting to me that it's never invoked. Because even if we didn't understand the full scope of the Holocaust at this point, you know, we did know about German anti-Semitism in like 38 or something. Yeah. Specifically Nazi, you know, and the people we fought in World War II anti-Semitism.
0: It is a little bit weird, but also a little bit. I don't know. This is another movie where I feel like, in some ways, the Hayes Code weirdly worked out in this movie's favor. Like, I think Montgomery is weirdly a more interesting character if the thing that sets him off is anti-Semitism. Because, like, why did he go fight in World War II? I guess he just likes killing people. Well, there was a draft. That's true, but his big complaint is you used to be able to be career military and it's everybody else that ruined it for you because it used to be a good gig.
1: Right, but now like any schmuck is in the military because everybody went to
0: war. Right, so you don't get the sense he was drafted, but also maybe he was drafted and just sort of has a superiority complex and tries to make this thing up about himself because he does that a lot too. He ends up being this like, interesting set of contradictions because the anti-semitism thing is kind of shoehorned in
1: i actually like that they don't end up invoking the nazis it's admitting that this is not an over there problem that it is also an internal problem and not trying to be like wow isn't this so strange considering he just went to fight the nazis yeah but american racism is a problem and is an historical problem and while they don't actually talk about the foundational one of anti-black racism the discussion of the sergeant's grandfather being killed because some guys didn't like Irish people and felt like beating up on one of them one night and they didn't mean to kill him but it just got out of control does at least acknowledge that this is a thing that one has to be vigilant about and it is a thing that america has a problem with and i think that's cool that they don't end up just being like oh yeah i mean nazis don't like jews so this guy is an aberration in america
0: (laughs) i totally agree i think it is just that the character becomes in a way that i feel like Even if we had somehow been able to keep the homosexuality angle in this movie from 1947, I think that Montgomery becomes this weirdly interesting character if it's specifically anti-Semitism, because I think you keep all of that stuff of, hey, this is a homegrown problem rather than a foreign problem, but you also just get the sense that, like, this guy is also just weird. Not in a sense that he is an aberration, but in the sense of he is his own particular person, instead of being this stand in for a kind of prejudice, which the character really risks bending over into. There are so many characters I think of like this in film where you are just a mouthpiece for a particular type of person. You're not actually a human being. Right. Montgomery is a terrible human being, but he is a human being. Like, he just has all of these weirdnesses to him outside of the anti-Semitism.
1: Yeah, I mean, he definitely seems to have the kind of superiority complex that comes from actually feeling really inferior. (laughs) Yeah. And you read that, and that tends to be... You know, when we were talking about people who are violently racist, that tends to be the thing, is that they have some kind of feeling that they deserve more than they've gotten.
0: This is a sort of class of criminal villain I really like, which is why I really liked the TV series Justified, of just smart enough to be stupid, just smart enough for it to be dangerous for them to decide like, well, I'm obviously smart enough that I've outsmarted the cops. And Montgomery's plan isn't that good, but it is just good enough that he really might get away with it if other people aren't paying attention. Mm. Yeah. I feel like we're sort of blocked on this scene where Finlay convinces Leroy to do something, because afterwards the movie is not particularly interesting. They have Leroy say that the guy that Montgomery murdered later, the sort of other witness to the first murder, isn't actually dead and wants pay off hush money from Montgomery, and drop this note with an address on it, and Montgomery goes looking for the guy, and... And goes, well, you found me here, but you can't prove anything because I'm just here because of this note. And Finlay goes, yeah, but I wrote the wrong address on the note and you came here anyway because you knew this was where the body was because you killed the guy. It's a fun little moment, but one, you know, he's not going to get away with it. And two, it's a lot of buildup for not the best payoff in the history of the world. Because really what makes act three great is convincing Leroy to do it and Finlay and Keeley starting to work together. The actual resolution of catching the killer is like, and then it's all wrapped up and it feels kind of perfunctory almost.
1: The scene actually between William Phipps as Leroy and Robert Ryan as Montgomery, where they're in the bathroom and they have these sinks that face each other with a you know mirror in between, but you can see around the mirror to talk to each other. And the cinematography, by the way, in this movie is really smart. There's a lot of great moments like this, starting with the very first one where you see the entire murder happen in shadows on the wall. <laughs> but the tension in that scene... I was sure that Leroy was going to get killed, that he was going to get his throat slashed, that Montgomery was going to see through it. And William Phipps plays it so well because you can see the fear in him, but you can also see him doing a really good job to direct that into him being always scared of Montgomery. So maybe it's not all that unusual. And maybe Mondi is not going to see that he's part of this plan to capture him but the tension there was I mean my heart was beating a thousand miles an hour and I do not think I took a breath for like five minutes
0: yeah I think the other thing that's great about that scene is that there is this sense both that Leroy is not like Southern stereotype stupid, but he's a little bit stupid.
1: Yeah, he's just not a very smart guy. Yeah. He's sweet.
0: There is a way in which you go like, oh God, why didn't the cops warn him? Like, oh God, this is so dangerous. And then you also, as you go through the scene, go... Oh, my God, being this stupid is the only thing that saves him. Like, if he actually seemed like the kind of person that could put two and two together here, Montgomery would totally murder him.
1: Oh, yeah, unquestionably.
0: (laughs) The thing that makes Leroy the perfect patsy to hand off this address note is that Montgomery goes, well, he'll never put it together. Montgomery hangs the guy. Um, and the great message that Leroy is supposed to pass on is that he saw the guy who is in fact dead, but that, yeah, he was alive and well just yesterday. And he told me the weirdest thing to tell you. He told me that he told me to tell you the necktie didn't fit. Well, any idiot could figure out that code, but we don't have any idiot. We have (laughs) Leroy. So I'm probably okay.
1: I just got to go find this guy and kill him for real. Yeah.
0: You're right. That scene is great. I want to kind of walk a line praising the cinematography because like one, it ain't Greg Toland, but two... There is a weird way in which I kind of respect it more for being kind of bargain basement Greg Toland, kind of Greg Toland on a budget and with a tighter deadline. This is how things can be more casually artful. This is kind of raising the bar for the medium as a whole, instead of going like, here is what film can do. It's like, here's what film really ought to do. You ought to be able to communicate these sort of things with the camera and make these lighting flourishes without necessarily, you know, building your whole set, building your whole film around it.
1: Oh yeah. See, I think actually that it is, I mean, obviously any kind of noir cinematography is going to be influenced by Toland, yeah, right? That's unquestionable. But I feel like this is at a point now where it is becoming its own genre style in a way that departs from the artistry of it and is like, how do we ratchet up tension by not showing certain things and focusing on others? And it feels as much influenced by comic books as it is influenced by Citizen Kane, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And like, I think the thing I'm trying to get across is obviously there is a lineage from Citizen Kane to this, but if you are making a comparison to Citizen Kane to this movie, this movie is going to look a little bit bad by comparison. What I think is really impressive about this movie is drawing a line from this movie to like Dragnet. Like, I see how we get to just noir kind of seeping into everything in the 50s from this. Mm, Yeah. This is how this just becomes film for a while there.
1: It's also really smart because what it allows for is if you set the shot right, you don't need to move the camera. You can create this tension by shooting over one guy's shoulder, which is what they do with Montgomery and Leroy. So Leroy looks very, very small and Montgomery seems huge and scary, even though, I mean, they are definitely different heights and Leroy is significantly shorter, but not two and a half feet shorter. (laughs) But it becomes, rather than bargain basement, I think the better description is very economical.
0: Yes, absolutely. The other example of that is the lighting in this movie is great, but the lighting in this movie is great in that they just took a really bright light and directed it correctly and just shown it on the set. Whereas when you watch Citizen Kane, you're like, oh, God, it took so much effort to make lighting look like they just took one bright light and shined it directly at the set. You know, they built the set so that the shadows would be cast like that.
1: Right. Or the Magnificent Ambersons, where they built the house around being able to have the camera in certain places on the staircase.
0: Right. And this is like, we've got a staircase, we're going to shine a really bright light up through the staircase. And it still looks pretty good. It doesn't look the way that Citizen Kane or Magnificent Ambersons looks, but it has that noir effect still. And you get the sense of the tone of this place from the lighting still. But it also is like that kind of lighting that you could film on a weekly basis, that you could film with the same lighting equipment that you use for every other project you're doing that month or that year. Yeah, economical is the right term. It isn't that it looks cheap. It's that it looks efficient.
1: Yes. And I do think that there's a significant departure thematically from a lot of the toland stuff and the john ford stuff who sometimes he worked with toland but there was the other cinematographer whose name i can't remember who also worked with him a lot and who did casablanca arthur edison yeah and edison also did maltese falcon um that that there is a departure enough away from the big serious family drama or like what is the soul of man that is basically what citizen kane is about (laughs) that with the understanding that these noir genre films are not as important the cinematography also doesn't have to evoke as important emotional symbolism it just has to be tense it just has to be gritty And that because of that, you don't need to spend the money and you don't need to spend the time. So, like, how do we make this one shot feel uh, very pregnant with anxiety without spending, you know, six and a half hours (laughs) setting up one shot? (laughs) And you end up with a different style. It is definitely influenced by but stylistically, it, it is enough of a departure that I think, like, we're seeing a new thing happen here.
0: Yeah. And like that scene between Montgomery and Leroy, you are right to point it out as being incredibly emblematic of this thing because it is, you are right, in terms of camera positioning, really boring in a weird sort of way. They
1: literally set the camera and do not move. Yeah. Until we're in the next room.
0: (laughs) And even in the next room, it's just some real, you know, A, B, over the shoulder type shit. These are really standard camera positions. But you're doing these camera setups really standard because you have the set set up right. You have the lighting set up right. You have the performances set up right to make those camera positions work, to make it so that this is still compelling, even without doing really flashy, really tough cinematography. Yeah, uh, I keep kind of talking myself into higher and higher scores for this movie,
1: I do agree with what you said to me. I don't know if you said it on the podcast as well, but (laughs) after you watch this movie, that it's not Maltese Falcon. And I mean, Maltese Falcon has some cinematography in it that is absolutely brilliant and which creates these really physiological responses in you, like when Humphrey Bogart gets poisoned and the camera goes with him to the floor. (laughs) Yeah. That's incredible. And it's very, very cool. And Arthur Edison is doing a tremendous job. And that's why The Maltese Falcon is a better film, but I don't think that that is necessary to get you that feeling of creeping anxiety that comes to define noir films. That's just great filmmaking, period, but it's not critical. And yeah, The Maltese Falcon is definitely a better movie. This is still a good one.
0: <laughs> yes, I completely agree. There are ways in which this is a better movie than Maltese Falcon. The plot kind of holds together better than the plot of Maltese Falcon because it doesn't have that cinematography and it doesn't have those. There are good performances in this movie. There are even a couple of great ones. There are also some bad performances in this movie in a way where everybody in Maltese Falcon is just fucking hitting it out of the park. And it kind of lets you paper over nobody's behavior really makes any sense. Everything is super overcomplicated. And then when you get to it, really almost nothing happens in Maltese Falcon in a weird sort of way. Right. You don't care because the movie looks like that. And everybody in each individual scene, while not really doing any active plot-y things, is just so compelling to watch. And this movie kind of doesn't have that going for it. And so the story is kind of tighter and more interesting than the story of Maltese Falcon. I don't want to go like it is better than Maltese Falcon. I think the original assessment of Maltese Falcon a better movie than this is correct. But like in being a little more workmanlike and economical than Maltese Falcon, it actually does some really compelling and interesting stuff Maltese Falcon didn't have to do.
1: And grounded in reality, (laughs) like at all, (laughs) which I think is really what you're trying to say, is that the plot of Maltese Falcon and the motivation and the things people are able to do, both villains and heroes, and make work, is beyond comic book, whereas this is like, okay, yeah, racists gonna do horrible shit. That's reality.
0: This is still a very heightened noir reality. That last scene where Finlay and Keeley just have a good laugh together and they're like, you need me to drive you anywhere? Nah, I don't care. We just caught a murderer. Me neither. We should
1: definitely talk about the last scene because they didn't actually catch a murderer. They shot him in the back while he was running away and he died. Right. And this is the point where this movie really dropped down in my estimation. And where I think it really ends up not surviving the screen test of time. And is the one place where it really just did not make the cut. Because otherwise, I think it's actually quite a good movie. And like you said, has a lot of resonance with things that are going on today and probably will be going on 50, 60, 80 years from now, unfortunately. But I, I really could not... I was like, they just shot that guy in the back. He was running away. Like, they could have caught him somewhere else. They didn't need to kill him. And then everybody's like, well, that's done.
0: Yeah. That is, yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm going to go have a cup of coffee. And I'm like, that's fucked up.
0: I had literally forgotten they killed him because they're so cavalier about it.
1: So cavalier.
0: It is the freeze frame ending they're parodying in, in like the Naked Gun movies. Like, I'm going to go home and just have a cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
1: Except that's Clue, but whatever.
0: (laughs) Right. I'm a cool guy because I don't care that we just killed someone.
1: And he literally says to the underling cops, clean this up. Like he spilled a cup of coffee. Yeah. And not just took someone's life. And yeah, Montgomery is a piece of shit and a murderer. No question. But I'm not okay with extrajudicial police killings, even of pieces of shit who are murderers.
0: Right. This is a movie that, like I say, exists in that heightened noir reality, but it does kind of shatter it when they kill Montgomery, because up until then, there's a lot of stuff that's like, you know... Women whose lives have been beaten down into sex work they do not want to be doing are not named Virginia Tremaine and chain smoke and go, let me tell you why I hate the cops. <laughs> like, their lives are much sadder than that and have a reality and a heft to them that this film does not give Virginia Tremaine. That's okay. It is okay that this movie does not really sit firmly in the real world. But there is something about, like, They just killed a guy. Hey, can we like stop chain smoking and standing dramatically in front of bright lights for a second?
1: And being (laughs) cool guys who are cool? Yeah. I mean, that's really what got to me is that there is nothing at all expressed. Like, oh, it's a shame that we didn't get to bring him in or or anything. Or even, hell yeah, we shot that guy and he's dead because he was going to get away with it because people don't care about Jewish people. There's nothing nothing no no feeling at all it is as high stakes as far as they're concerned as like oh i got a spot on my tie at lunch end of story
0: right it's the like and then we're gonna do this all again next week sense of the last scene yeah you are that's fucked up this is not a really particular week in your life i had forgotten they did that because it is so tonally mismatched But you are totally right to point that out as a huge point against this movie before we rate it. But we probably should do that now.
1: Yeah. I'm going to give this movie a 7. Which I feel like I've given movies that I liked less a 7, which makes it sound like I don't like this movie. And again, I mean, the very last thing was very, very jarring for me. But I think that there is enough that is good in this film as far as its themes, it is a strongly anti-racist movie. Not just like, racism is bad, but we have to actually fight against racism and be vigilant about it. And we need to educate people on this and get them involved in ways that may actually be a danger to them in the case of Leroy, or at the very least uncomfortable. And I think that that's, a really valuable thing yeah. I've talked a lot about the cinematography and feeling like it's very impressive for what it is but is it the kind of movie that is a for all-time classic is it an it's a wonderful life is it a Mr. Smith goes to Washington is it even a Philadelphia story I don't think so I think it's a good workmanlike was a good word. <laughs> movie with a really great message yeah and for me that's kind of a seven
0: yeah i think this is kind of a forgotten gem of cinema history but it isn't a forgotten gem the way that the grand illusion is it isn't a holy shit why is this not mentioned in the pantheon right movie it's Hey, this is a really fun movie, and when people are mentioning noir movies from the 40s, they should probably bring this one up more.
1: I think it really suffers from the title, honestly. I
0: totally agree. Are
1: you going to remember The Maltese Falcon or Crossfire? Or Double Indemnity or Crossfire. <laughs>
0: the title is totally generic, and I don't think it's helped by the fact that the first 30 minutes are pretty generic. Like, the first 30 minutes is the weakest run of this movie. I think the weakest particular point, you're right, is the killing of Montgomery at the end. But this movie takes a while to lock in. It really leans hard on noir cliches and has some performances that don't really work very well. The wife of the murder victim, I think, kind of is the worst performance in the movie, and she's in the first scene. She's trying to do traumatized, but she is clearly doing a traumatized performance. It also doesn't really lock you into this heightened reality very well at first.
1: Her performance only makes sense if. She is under suspicion. Yeah. Because of the way that she is playing trauma for us to see that she is playing trauma. And then it turns out that actually she's not. She's upset. Her husband died. We'd never see her again ever. And it's confusing as to whether or not that was a choice that was made to sort of throw you off because it's a noir thriller or if it was just not good acting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like all of these things that I'm saying against this movie are why I'm going to agree with you and put this at a seven. I have sort of a six to eight range I was kicking around there. And I think a seven is fair. But I do think this is a movie that is a seven because I don't quite know what I'm saying about watch this movie in a way where like this movie does not really stand the screen test of time. But in the sense of all of the movies we have watched for screen test of time, I am a little like, I mean, watch this movie if you're going to follow along with us. This at least doesn't make you feel like, oh, God, why did I have to watch this? It's kind of a fun watch.
1: Yeah, I would say that I got caught up in the crossfire. (laughs)
0: Full circle!
1: Because it is actually quite engaging. It moves at a clip. It's got a good story. It has a good message.
0: It's got Virginia Tremaine.
1: It's got Virginia Tremaine. I mean, what else do you need in life, really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would say watch this movie if you want to, but is it a must-watch? Uh probably not yeah then on the other hand it is in some ways a a better noir film than the Maltese Valkyrie which you mentioned or double indemnity which while super compelling is absolutely absurd yeah (laughs) and this is a lot more grounded than either of those films For better or for worse.
0: Yeah, here's the thing. I'm not sure grounded is the right word. The mystery holds up in this. Like, this is a better mystery movie than either of those. Because it takes you a minute to figure out who did it. But once you're inside it it kind of has that satisfying structure of a columbo episode where it's like how are they going to catch this piece of shit rather than who done it
1: mm, yeah it
0: is a satisfying mystery movie that does not hit the pantheon of noir movies the way that Maltese Falcon and Double Indemnity do but is still clearly in that noir space critic Dennis Schwartz says is this really a noir movie And, like, I get what they're saying. I don't want to bag on other critics or people who are actually professionally critics unlike us. But, yes, this movie is clearly a noir movie. It is a bit non-standard as a noir film, but, like... You you ain't doing the initial murder in, like, incredibly stark lighting where there's one lighting source and you can't see anything but the shadow of a murder. And then going, not sure if this is a noir movie or not. That's (laughs) the most noir thing.
1: It absolutely is. Just because it happens to not be about a femme fatale or strangely European villain (laughs) doesn't mean that it's not. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say it's a bit more grounded is because there's not the nonsense that goes on in your Maltese Falcon or your double indemnity where it's like this falls apart the minute you try to wonder how this would work in real life.
0: Yeah. Earlier you said comic book for Maltese Falcon and that's totally it. Like there are several characters in Maltese Falcon. I could imagine building an evil robot to fight Superman. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely like, nobody in this movie is that.
1: No, there are no uber <laughs> mensch in this movie.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I watch this movie for fun. But like, if you don't, you this is not a movie that I feel compelled to tell people about. It's not a movie that I got to the end and I was like, Nikki, please come watch this movie with me. But like, it was a pleasant enough way to spend, you know, it's a tight 90 minute movie. It's compelling.
1: 86, in fact, it's even yeah. better.
0: <laughs> it's a fun watch, but it is good, but just short of great, I would say. For a couple of reasons.
1: It is just that. What
0: are we watching next week?
1: Next week, we are watching Gentleman's Agreement, which was the winner for 1947. And has Gregory Peck.
0: That's a good sign. And
1: is also about anti-Semitism, so...
0: Gregory Peck looks way too good in this poster Susan, I am terrified by how good Gregory Peck looks in this poster
1: It's probably going to be really bad
0: One, it should probably be illegal Two, it means the movie's probably going to be really bad
1: Yeah, (laughs) that is usually the case
0: Even outside of that, it should be illegal to look that good
1: (laughs) I mean, they did later make it illegal Which is why Gregory Peck had to stop being that good looking
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, LBJ did some good things, and he did some bad things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, it was in To Kill a Mockingbird, so that would have been uh, JFK's realm. Right. He signed the legislation, and, you know, <laughs> Congress had to vote on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, tune in next week to find out if uh, good poster, terrible movies still holds up.
0: Yeah. Until then I mean this was a movie But it was also like I don't know I harp on it a lot But this is a blueprint For a lot of TV In a way that I really enjoyed
1: <laughs> Yeah And again You'll get caught up in it If you watch it <laughs> I'm never gonna not find that joke funny Yeah Goodbye everybody Bye
0: Crossfire you get caught up in the Crossfire
1: Crossfire! You'll get caught up in the... Crossfire! 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 Crossfire!
0: Crossfire! Crossfire. You'll get caught up in it.